Hi and welcome to episode 7 of Life with Catherine. I'm Catherine. Today's topic is anxiety, stress, and time management. I'll be featuring the blog of Dr. Raul Pacheco Vega. Stress is a lifelong juggling act. Happiness, pressure, work, play, family, health, career, short and long-term goals, expectations, life hurdles, and of course, luck. We may not always be aware of its presence, but stress can kick in easily in one area of your life. If, uh, for example, a stressful week of work um, can be managed when your home life is in harmony. So if one area is out of whack, uh, having multiple ones can really uh, contribute to overload. I have here, it says, add stress in two areas at once. That's when stress overload can easily take over. I'm not a doctor or a psychologist. These opinions are my own thoughts and experiences, which I've learned the hard way as usual. (laughs) Anxiety and stress. When I, when I was in my 20s, I figured um, I was just an easily stressed out person. My husband, Brian, at the time he was my boyfriend, he was reading the memoir written by actor Jay Moore. In this book, he talks about situations that hit him hard, which made seemingly no sense. On Saturday Night Live, he would be exhausted after the show, but could run for miles after, not being able to sit still then absolutely crash, and his stress meter would kick into high gear for non-issues. He saw a doctor who talked about anxiety. This planted the seed in my brain that maybe there was more to my stress levels than just me being a stressed out, overly reactive person. I did a ton of reading and research and spoke with my doctor, and we created a plan for my anxiety. There isn't an easy, logical way to explain anxiety. I would say it's a reaction of focusing on everything in detail on a repeat cycle in your head, rather than being able to move on from the topic. Some people describe it as a feeling of spiraling downward. A way I like to explain anxiety is uh, when I have a drink of water, It starts a countdown to when I have to pee and when the next drink is needed. It's a very micro-obsessive viewpoint. Having anxiety can be a state of extremes, seesawing from extremely happy to extremely sad, rarely with middle ground. The goal isn't to have a stress-free life. Stress is a natural reaction to circumstances. And our fight-or-flight instinct is important for us as humans. We need small bouts of stress to keep us on our toes. The idea is to have healthy reactions to it. Being out of your comfort zone is a good, healthy growth skill. I think of it as a muscle that needs exercise, too. Someone once told me about anxiety that you're being unfair to the other person 
If you just assume they're going to hurt you, say no or overreact. You are judging them before they've even had a chance to react. It's funny because I hear people say, in five years, you still won't be thinking about this. But with anxiety, it's a different story. Someone with anxiety can still be holding on to it five years later. I didn't realize it at the time, but uh, when I was in high school, I was already showing signs of anxiety. I would write exams and my mind would go completely blank. It was frustrating that I could let stress take over to the point I had zero memory recall. Needless to say, I wasn't a great student. I was such a dreamer anyway that I would sometimes on my essays start out with, that's not an interesting question. What I really think needs focusing on is this part of the story. Then I'd go on a tangent, writing in detail, but not ever answering the original question. Once they even wrote on my exam that I should be a politician. (laughs) But my parents never asked me to be any different from that. They uh, quite enjoyed me being a dreamer. Another sign of anxiety is that I suffered from nightmares when I was in high school. I had a very insightful high school counselor that I only saw a few times but had a profound set of coping skills that I still use to this day. The key is, when you're talking about anxiety, is that they were a set of recurring nightmares. So again, obsessively in detail, on a repeat cycle. It was, at that age, my way of processing the world and reality. One of the coping skills the counselor taught me was lucid dreaming. It wasn't as well known at the time as it is now. She told me to notice things as I was dreaming so that you could tell you were in their dream. Tell your mind to look around. Are your feet touching the ground? Are there walls? Are the people around you detailed or vague? After a while you will start to realize you are in a dream state and that you have the power to use a trigger word to pull you out of your dream and actually wake yourself up. My mom also would comfort me after and would ask me to think of the point in the nightmare where things turn stressful, go back to that moment and create a new ending. Then tell yourself once you fall asleep, to micro-obsessively have that peaceful dream instead of the stressful one. For example, at one point, I was processing the idea that computers will take over the world. Another was how, how do space shuttles stay on course? What if they veered off and went into the sun? For real, that's what I dreamed. <laughs> I've always been a dreamer. <laughs> And now I'm going to go into some coping tools. Uh, Some are obvious and some are not. So uh, fitness, um, running can be a therapeutic state. Uh, Exercise is good for your body and your mind. That's an obvious one. Diet, self-explanatory. Caffeine can put your stress levels out of whack and also can overstimulate your bladder. 
proper sleep, very important. Occasional bouts of uh, staying up late, not a big deal, but proper regular sleep. Um, really in being in the moment and enjoying laughter, friendships and fun, taking time to really appreciate those moments helps. In a moment of stress or panic inside your head, you can create an automatic unfiltered number. Rate your natural stress level in that moment. Then take a deep breath and consider that number. Is it a fair representation of the situation? It's a nine. It's a 10. But once you've taken a breath and really thought about it, you might relabel it down to a four. It's also a way of training your mind what numbers actually follow what situation. Quite often it gets relabeled from a nine down to a three. This is a small easy one, but makes a big difference. Posture. Don't slouch. Sit up straight so that you can breathe deeper and easier. More oxygen equals more energy. On my SkyTrain ride into work, I put in my headphones, sometimes not even listening to anything, just to lessen the noise intake level so I can easily slip into a relaxed state and use that travel time wisely. Medications are available in uh, small dosages and also higher levels to manage stress and panic for short or long-term use. This is a very private choice for people, so I'd rather steer clear of the topic. I create to-do lists at home and on my phone. There's always a long-term list, but also a short-term list. This gets it all out of my brain so I can rest at night. Turn off my brain easier, and it also makes my main to-do list shorter and more manageable. Even on my to-do list, I really only consider the top two things the most important for the day, and everything else can, can just go by the wayside if it needs to. Recently, I walked through the grass in my bare feet on a spring day. It was very therapeutic and also kind of old school. I like that kind of stuff. I'm always into wearing bare feet. Sometimes people ask me how I got through my stage fright for performing the anthems, the U.S. and Canadian anthems for crowds. Quite simply, I decided I'd rather be up there than in the audience at that moment. When I'm at an event and I hear the anthem singer, I have a, a drive, a feeling, um, instinct to be the one to be up there. As for the lyrics, I just study the words. And then on the event day, I just let them go and also stay very calm. That never worked for me as a teenager because I didn't understand it as well. The part of staying, uh, keeping stress away on the day. Um, stay very calm, walk out breathing slowly and calmly, and let your instincts take over.
focus only on what note is coming next and the task at hand. Having a stage name also really helped. Being Catherine O'Scara allowed me to walk out with a picture of confidence and strength. And always the best shoes. <laughs> Raoul's blog will be featured later. But in a different one of his blog posts, he mentions protect your writing and research time. I apply that to my life as protecting my time for daydreaming, creativity, and mental health. It can mean working on this podcast, resting, fresh air, or just living my life instead of overscheduling. <coughs> Excuse me. Another podcast I listened to um, that has to do with time management uh, that we're going to talk about in a minute is the Tim Ferriss podcast. That's Tim and then Ferris F-E-R-R-I-S. Oh no, it might be two S's. I'll have to go look. <laughs> Sorry, Tim. He talks a lot about uh, time management and uh, decision making. Um, and one of the things he says, if you have to do a task more than once, automate it whenever possible. He's actually the author of the New York Times bestseller, The 4-Hour Workweek, and his podcast is called The Tim Ferriss Show. He's a great one if you're interested in other podcasts to listen to. One last thing I do that I've, I've learned the hard way for stress is saying no. I say no a lot. And I miss fun opportunities. Some of them, yes. But frankly, I only have so much time, just like everyone else. And each one yes comes tied to a lot of other no's. So I make each yes count. That's something else I learned from Tim Ferriss. And now for time management. Raoul lives in a world of academia. And I feel it's important to explore topics outside of my daily experiences to make an effort to understand how others' lives can be very different from mine. I think... Raoul would be amused that I actually schedule time for daydreaming. It's a way of processing my life. In fact, this podcast came out of a daydream. I thought about doing an excerpt of his blog, but it would only give half the picture, and I feel like this blog post uh, forms a complete thought, as if I'm qualified to edit his ideas. <laughs> <laughs> That's what I kept, I was saying to myself. It was all just too good. So who is Raoul and why am I featuring him on this? He has a short CV on his uh, website. I'll include all his social media later. Dr. Raoul Pacheco Vega is an assistant professor in the Public Administration Division of the Center for Economic Teaching and Research the CIDE, in Mexico. 
He is a specialist in comparative public policy and focuses on North American environmental politics, primarily sanitation and water governance, solid waste management, neo-institutional theory, transnational environmental social movements, and experimental methods in public policy. His current research program focuses on the spatial, political, and human dimensions of public service delivery. He is also associate editor of the Journal of Environmental Sciences, nope, the Journal of Environmental Studies and Sciences, JESS, and sits on the editorial board of Water International, Global Environmental Politics, and several other journals. Blog post of Dr. Raul Pacheco Vega, May 5th, 2016, titled My Daily Workflow on Focusing on One Task at a Time. Some people have asked me what my daily workflow is or told me that they find my blog useful. So I figured I could do a post or series of posts on the topic, as it varies day by day. When I teach, I normally don't do anything else other than teach that day. This semester, I pushed all my teaching to one day, four hours, so that I could still travel and do field work and not miss any lectures. While I was ill for five of the first week, eight weeks of the semester, I think I caught up quite nicely given that I'd already written three conference papers, all in English, one book chapter in English, and one book chapter in Spanish. Despite my late start to the year, you could say I started doing research on February 15th, I've caught up. I did this by focusing on one task at a time. Here's what I do when I use this model of thinking. Number one, use conferences as writing deadlines. I usually participate in conferences where the requirement is that you provide a full paper. While some academics choose not to upload their papers to the conference website, I do it because I think it's part of the rules and I'm supposed to follow them. So this semester I was scheduled to participate in ISA 2016, International Studies Association, WPSA, Western Political Science Association 2016, MPSA 2016, Midwest Political Science Association, and a closed by invitation workshop on water as one of the main Mexican problems. All of these are conferences that require full papers. Number two, use the first conference to prompt me to write. Given that I had the impending, looming deadline of ISA 2016 hanging over my head, I simply shut down everything else I was working on and focused on that first paper. I started writing the paper about two weeks before the conference started, but I was basically doing nothing else except for some edits to a paper I was co-authoring that is very nearly done. I was able to submit ISA's paper on time, and that sense of completion helped motivate me to keep writing. Number three, protect my writing time. And use the travel time for conferences as dedicated writing time. 
as I have always recommended, you need to protect your writing and research time. I'm very adamant about guarding my time. And this year, decided to focus and not allow anybody else to make any use of my time that wasn't approved. So I scheduled time for my graduate students, my undergraduate students, my co-authorships, and the service I'm supposed to do for the CIDE, and didn't accept anything else, as enticing as it may have sounded. Given that I knew I had five weeks of travel coming up, I also knew that I could use the time at the airports, on the plane, and just before the conference to write. I wrote my first MPSA paper, a draft of which I presented at WPSA, on the plane to Atlanta, where ISA was being held. I wrote a draft, wrote a draft of my second MPSA paper on my way to San Diego for WPSA. Number four, present similar incremental versions of the same paper. This is another way of focusing on one task at a time. Instead of trying to finish different papers, I chose one paper that I would be presenting at two conferences using the feedback from the first conference to improve it for the second one. That's what I did with one of my MPSA papers. I presented a draft at WPSA in San Diego, then used the feedback to improve it for the version I submitted for MPSA in Chicago. I am doing something similar for LASA 2016, where I'll present a derivative paper version in English of my 2014 book chapter on remunicipalization <laughs> in Latin America in Spanish. Sorry, Raul, let me try that again. 2014 book chapter on remunicipalization in Latin America in Spanish. Leave every, oh, number five, leave every single distraction off my desk. This is something I always do that seems to surprise many people. I can't have a messy desk. It drives me bonkers. So I always clean it up every evening with a full rehaul every weekend. I have my office systematically organized because let's face it, I'm too lazy to find things and only leave on my desk whatever stuff is related to the project I'm finishing at the time. For example, this week I was finishing a book chapter on international relations and the environment. I had only the printout I was editing by hand on my desk. For the grant proposal I was finishing, all I had on my desk was the budget, the printout where I did manual edits, and the terms of reference for the proposal. If I let my desk get messy, I stop focusing, and then my brain drifts away from the task at hand. Number six, write and work only for as long as I actually physically can, not when exhausted. As I've written before, I'm someone with very specific physical vulnerabilities. I've shown symptoms of chronic fatigue. I've been chronically sleep deprived. Graduate school was very rough. And I can't survive long work days without taking at least a 90-minute nap. So I'm very adamant about knowing when to stop. When I feel that I can't focus anymore, I simply stop and switch tasks. I leave a very te detailed list of what I have to do to finish a paper on my desk. And I come back to it the next morning. 
Number seven, leave the mindless tasks for the downtimes. When I can no longer focus on my writing, I usually answer emails or schedule meetings with my colleagues, students, etc. I organize my desk and office when I'm tired from doing any thinking. I go for walks. I visit my colleagues at their offices. Number eight, schedule specific times for writing and research projects. I know I've written before about how important it is to keep several projects on the go and how you need to move every project forward. But when the going gets tough, I adapt my own strategies. And one of those is that I focus on one task at a time. Something I have done when I have several deadlines at the same time is that I schedule one day for each one project. Since I am already used to scheduling my life to the every minute, <laughs> this is relatively easy to do. So, for example, I'm editing a volume on water governance in Mexico. Fridays are my water governance in Mexico days. Tuesdays are usually my politics of bottled water days. Wednesdays are usually my waste pickers days. Mondays are my teaching days. The last one, number nine. Compartmentalize tasks. Because I know that not all my computers have the same capabilities, I draw figures, run Stata on atlas.ti on my desktop, which is faster. Also, since I write in two languages, Spanish and English, and my desktop, desktop computer is in Spanish, I usually write my papers in that language on the desktop. I also upload all my Mendeley PDFs on the desktop as it's connected to the CIDE network and thus is much faster and has IP access to download the articles. I do the same when I split my time between my home office and my campus office. I usually write in the mornings at home until I finish a specific section and then move on to the office. And this is where he wraps it up. This is an example of how the sausage is made or as Eva Langsot would say, I'm Raul Pacheco Vega, and this is how I work, which uh, I hope will be useful to other people. And like with any piece of advice, adapt what works best for you. You can find Raul on Twitter as at Raul Pacheco, R-A-U-L-P-A-C-H-E-C-O, and he's on Facebook, and his blog is at www.raulpacheco.org, R-A-U-L-P-A-C-H-E-C-O.org. Thank you, Raul, for sharing that, and uh, I hope you enjoyed this podcast all about anxiety, stress, time management, and it can give you a little insight into me and uh, some coping tools, and maybe you can help understand others and help support others with that situation. My next podcast, I plan, uh, I have a couple on the go, but I plan to be talking about how I came up with my podcast, uh, how I create the stories and uh, how I lay them out, how I actually do the editing and the writing, but also how I physically load it to the website, how I run a website, how I chose it and all those kinds of fun things, so that you could do your own if you wanted. But I wanted to give you an idea of, of what it's like to actually create one, and the technology that I use. So that will be, uh, that's my next project, 
And if you have any other story ideas, let me know. Um, I don't ask for money for any of these podcasts, but you can always uh, flip onto my site and uh, click the donate button. Uh, No pressure either way. But uh, I hope you enjoyed this and thanks for listening. Bye.